Hello, I'm Keith Jopling from the Song Sommelier, and you're listening to The Art of Longevity. Brett Anderson from Suede once said that successful artists have all followed a similar journey, comprising four stages. The struggle, the stratospheric rise to the top, the crash down to the bottom, and then the renaissance. We'll reflect on the learnings, wisdom, battle scars and wounds of major artists that have been decades in the music business and ask, what really defines success? It's a question many fans and fellow musicians and aspiring musicians want to know the answers to. We find out on the art of longevity. Laura Veers, welcome to The Art of Longevity. Thanks, Keith. Nice to meet you. Uh, Laura, how are you and whereabouts in the world are you? I am doing just fine and I am in Portland, Oregon, where I live. I am in an apartment on the Columbia River with a beautiful view. Right now I'm in the stairwell because my kids are doing online learning at home with a nanny and so I couldn't find a quiet place in the apartment and I'm feeling like right now pretty good in the stairway. <laughs> yeah, such is the the pandemic life, right? <laughs> it certainly is. Well, Laura, I want to have a little bit of a celebration with you because this is 20 years you've been making music or at least you've been releasing music commercially. Yes. Um since your your debut in in 2001 with the Trials uh, and travails of orphan may um h- how are you looking back does it feel like 20 years uh it feels like an instant and a million years at once <laughs> i feel like time also in covid has gotten very warped like my sense of time yeah things go really fast or really slow so i kind of feel that's the same with this thinking about my career it's like it feels like just yesterday like my kids are, my older kids really into Nirvana right now. And they're 11. They go by they, them, and they are 11. And um, I was like, oh my God, it feels like just yesterday I was in Seattle right after Nirvana, that whole burst happened because I moved there in 1997. And their, their heyday had basically ended, but it was still like the, the Nirvana city, you know, and I was thinking like, gosh, it feels like yesterday. And yet, you know, I went, I remember um, being on tour in England in like five years ago, or maybe it was 10. And there was this like retro music night at the club, Nirvana. I'm like, wait, what? Nirvana's retro now? Like, duh, yeah, of course Nirvana's (laughs) retro. So (laughs) it's just like so strange. It's kind of fun having it go full circle with my kid being into Nirvana. Because that was obviously, I mean, everybody was in my scene was totally into them. And they were an inspiration. like all the punk yeah. bands from the Northwest were influential to me at, in my beginning days. And, um, you know, now the guy from Nirvana is like a, I don't know, the Christ is like a commissioner or something in the government. I don't know what he's doing. I'm not really tracking him, <laughs> but, you know, it's just like yeah. things we have know, changed. We know what Dave, yeah, we know what Dave Grohl's doing. We know what happened to Kerr, but what about the other guy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... Um, it's it's great the way music keeps coming back around and the 90s i think is just in for an even bigger mm-hmm. decade yeah. than ever which in, in a weird way but do your kids appreciate that you're partly from a punk background 
not that punk is grunge, but you know. I mean, they think I'm just their their stupid mom, <laughs> not stupid mom, but you know, like I'm not cool to them at all. And I don't think any moms really are. And maybe in the future I will be, but I mean, I think they can appreciate sometimes that I have a career in music and I'm still active and doing stuff. But to me, to them, I'm like not cool at all because they're into TikTok and like, you know, they are into the, the older one is into punk and like mm-hmm. can kind of put it in context a little bit, but my music to them seems, and I haven't shared my punk music with them. Maybe I should, but like my early days in my riot girl band and stuff, I only have one recording from that, that era, but it is part of my past. And, and I love getting into it with them and and I think they can see you know the that I am a professional musician but I'm not I don't they don't see the punk side and I don't it's like more soft folk music now in a way I mean I still have that edge sometimes but it's uh well, you should sit down with them and show them that one recording and then you'll be cool mom <laughs> they're really hard to please I have to tell you oh tell me about it I've got I've got three daughters myself and I, I i know the score they're a little bit older than yours mm-hmm. um, but uh, we we might get onto this in a second but i want to start if i may with actually halfway through your career with july flame um and the reason i want to start there is because personally i think it's a masterpiece thank uh, you it's, it's, it's been a really special album for me and so i wanted to just get into your mindset when you were making that album because it sounds uh, correct me if i'm wrong but after a year of meteors and salt breakers where you're doing a bit more pop and going back into your punk roots a little bit even though it was still essentially you know folk pop uh, you went back to your roots a little bit what was going through your mind at the time you made that record well i had been dropped from nonsuch which is a major label And I was bummed about that because I thought I was, you know, they had said like, you're like our next Joni Mitchell. You'll be with us forever. You know, like those big platitudes in New York visiting their fancy apartments and going out to dinner and stuff. It's like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, and then, nope, you're not here anymore. So that sucked. But um, it gave me and, and I'm sure you talked with all your artists about this, all your interviewees about getting dropped by this person or that label or that agent or that thing fell apart or that manager didn't work out. It's like, it's going to go up and down over this long, you know? And so I, but that was my first real, I mean, I had been dropped by managers and agents before. So I knew that with that feeling, but it was different in this case because I thought it was going to be a lifelong or a long relationship. Um, but that's okay. It's business, you know, like I wasn't selling enough records and that's really what it comes down to. So I really was tested at a certain level to find my own way. And I decided, you know, I come from this punk do it yourself background and I'm going to just go for my own label and try it with good management and, and it ended up outselling the the Nonsuch records. So I felt a lot of pride after that. Not that numbers are all that this is about, but I did feel like my ego was like redeemed or something because I just felt, you know, mm. so bummed that I was dropped because anyone would feel that way. But I also felt like really proud that my team could get this music out and that, 
you know, I, when I was writing it, I, I wrote, that was the first time I wrote a huge amount of songs for a record and, you know, culled through to get the best ones. Um, you know, and we can talk about this at some other time, but I, then I developed, I think I started over the years developing like a neurosis about overwriting, like writing too many songs, but mm. that was the first time I really spent a long time and a lot of effort writing. And, and, and I was really um, like fine tuned in my, in my guitar playing and stuff by that time. Like I was just really, yeah. really like great finger style guitar player. So that I think the writing I put in the work with the writing and that by that time I'd been writing for 10 years, you know, so like you get better and you get better as a player, you get better as a singer. So by that time I had, you know, been at it long enough to have put in, I don't know if I'd put in my 10,000 hours yet, but I had really done a lot of work to get there. And so the, it was both the, the creative work was happening and then the business side was happening. And then it turned out, to work out for me. And then I, that gave me the confidence to keep my own label, to get my own publishing back from people, to get my master's back. And now I own almost all my own music. I mean, Bella Union still has stuff in um, England or overseas, but a few of the records, but it's been, it's been a, all those choices, like not signing a big publishing deal. I just signed an admin deal. Like all those choices allowed me to have a really steady passive income all these years. And that's been a relief, especially now as I'm a single parent, like, it's been important to me to have ownership of all that stuff. And so that's where the DIY punk rock, do it yourself, own your own stuff, control your own masters thing has really served me well in the long yeah. term. <clears throat> yeah. You forged your own path as a, as an independent musician. And that's one of the interesting things about doing this program is finding out how people have, have done that. But with July flame, I think you proved the point to non such for sure, because artistically it was, you know, it was a, it was a big step forward. I, and I think the albums you made for Nonsuch were both good albums. Um, but then, as you say, commercially, it did really well. In fact, you know, I, to me, it's a classic. So talk me through the making of the record a little bit. You had a lot of players join you um, and you kind of gone back to your roots a little bit. And as you say, the, the playing was kind of simple arrangements, but it sounds very lush as well. Did did you want to work? Did you want to collaborate with a lot of musicians? Did you want to have a community around you at the time? Was that part of, you know, getting over the being dropped thing? Um, I mean, in all honesty, Tucker, my ex-husband, he was my producer for twenty years. He had he had so much say. He just basically ran the records, like how they would go, and so I I didn't. It wasn't like he was controlling about it at all. I just kind of we had developed this relationship where he would basically like make those kinds of decisions, like who's going to do what I would make the decisions about um, writing, like which songs, I mean, he would help me curate which songs would get picked, but I would, he never helped with the songwriting or the instrument, like playing guitar or piano or something and singing all that was me. But when it came to arrangements and musicians, he would just, he would just like, Hey, how about this guy? I'm like, sounds good. And I think that's something that's like a growth area for me now because this I'm working yeah. on my first album without him. And it's been an interesting process to come into my own in that way and decide myself or with a new producer who and how this is going to go. And so like at that time he, you know, we were living in Portland. We had moved from Seattle and we were a relatively new couple and we didn't have kids yet. That was the one that I made before kids with him mm. living in the house. So 
we recorded in our basement in Northeast Portland at a house we owned and we just brought people in and he, you know, but I have to say he was the one deciding that stuff and he made good decisions. I mean, I feel like a lot of those players are great players. And that was the first time we met Jim James from my morning jackets, great singer came and sang in on it. And so those were fun, you know, and some of those friends are still my friends. And, um, a lot of those people are just sort of like stalwart Portland music community people um, who are still playing. Yeah, it comes across on the record. It's somewhat blissful. I think one of the reviews at the time said it was like being in a seance, which I don't know. That's, maybe that's not the effect you were trying to trying to get. But I, I recommend to anyone listening to give it a listen half drunk on a sun lounger. That, that for me, is the, the right situation to listen to that record because it sucks you in and you just uh, you just surrender yourself to it and it's there's nature all over it as well which is a theme that has been in your music probably from the start but it seemed to have come to the surface for me uh, particularly on carbon glacier talk to me about your influences a little bit and and where nature comes into it because it feels like that's the dominant uh, influence on your music actually to me yes I would agree. Um, at that point, I had started um, setting a theme for the record each time and working around that. And so for Carbon Glacier, it was, well, for Trouble by the Fire, there was a lot of fire. And that, but like um, Triumphs and Travails of Orphan May was about, a, it was a, like my first attempt at a concept album and that was about a young woman traveling around the old west and she was kind of me and kind of not me and but the one before that was my very first record from 1999 that I recorded in three hours live at a friend's studio so by the time Carbon Glacier came around I was sort of like getting into this idea of using a lyrical theme to tie everything together and that one was like winter and ice and um like mountain earth kind of stuff. Yeah. Then the next one was like your meteors was sky. So it was like stuff up in the air or uh, like space, outer space stuff. And yeah. and then um, salt breakers was the ocean and salt. Yeah. And then yeah. Um, July flame was fire. And, and, but I was sort of letting the songs guide me a little more too. like, it's like a dark summer album. But yeah, nature is a big part of how I I write, and I, it's not intentional necessarily anymore. Like right now, I don't do that. I don't set a goal or like a parameter around the writing. I just write and see what happens. Mm. But I'll see what happens it, it, over like a year, and then I'll look back and be like, "Oh, you're talking about this." Okay, then talk about that some more and wrap it up. Yeah, well, I did, well, let's come on to that in a bit. But I didn't realize that um, it makes total sense now that over those four albums, you kind of explored the different elements. Yes. I, I just didn't really consider that before. Mm-hmm. Did I miss something there? <laughs> I mean, I don't think um, very many people knew that, but that that was how I was structuring it. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, I mean, when I, whenever I'm in nature, you know, there's, there's like three artists I go to. Um, you're one of them. Bjork is another. And, and, you know, you mentioned Jim James, My Morning Jacket's another, and I've written about, how their music is just intertwined with nature when you and jim james get together that must be a bit of a dance around the campfire then 
Um, actually, it's often just a quick burst, like I'll see you at a show or um, you'll stop by the studio for an hour and then it's just, he's usually on tour or I'm on tour. It's like actually not yeah. really a big party at all. It's just like a kind of like quick <laughs> hey, and then see you like in six months or a year. Right. Right. That's just something in that. That's a fantasy of mine then. Maybe, maybe that's a collaboration for the future. Maybe. But I want to, I want to I, I fast forward to 2016 where you did do the collaboration with, with, with Katie Lang and Nico Case. And they're two, icons right uh you did the, most of the writing on that record just talk to me about how that came about and how it, how it came to be that you did most of the writing on that record and what it was like working with those two because they're they're kind of legends yeah um that i will say i was the main songwriter but i didn't do most of the writing they they would they like all the song i guess i i wrote on my own maybe three but then we co-wrote the rest of them but um okay. but they basically the way it worked was we would sometimes meet all three of us and write together from nothing, but that was hard because it's three like strong personalities that don't really know each other. Sometimes it would be me and just me and KD writing. And then Nico would come in and change stuff around and add stuff. And that worked pretty well. And sometimes it would be like, I would bring in source material and this was the most common way it happened towards the end. Cause this whole process was th three years long the writing, recording, right. and touring of that record. Um, sometimes I would bring in source material and be like, hey, here's a song, what do you guys think? And they'd be like, that's cool, let's just do it that way. Or they would be like, no, let's, like Nico for Atomic Number, I had already written, that was the first song on the album, I had already written a song with lyrics and music. She lifted out all the lyrics and put in her own lyrics, but kept the music. So kept the melody and kept the guitar part. And then we structured musicians around that. And that was really fun for me because one thing I do have as a strength is I write a lot and I produce a lot of material. So I'm not very attached to it. I don't really care. It's like, yeah, there's one. Okay. And then I'll just get another one. You know, it's like some musicians write 10 songs for a record. I'll write like a hundred. And I'm trying to whittle that down because I feel like it became like this excessive thing that like was a neurosis. Like I couldn't stop writing because I just thought, I needed to keep writing. Like I wasn't, it was coming from a place of not feeling good enough and like being an overachiever. And I want to, and so for this new record, I only wrote 50 and then I got 14 that I like or 15. So it's such a funny thing. Like some people have, like everybody has their, <laughs> their strengths and weaknesses. And so I guess I'll say that one of my strengths is writing, a lot, having a lot of ideas and coming up with a lot of material pretty easily. So it was really fun for me to see Nico do that because I didn't have this ego attachment to it. It's like, yeah, it's some song, like mm. see what you guys can bring to it. And she would, she lifted out, she brought in all her own lyrics, which were so different from the way that I write. And I love, yeah. I love her lyric writing. It's so good. And it's so different from my approach. And I learned a lot about writing lyrics from Nico. So that was fun. And then Katie, I learned a lot about um, like bravado because I'm a pretty shy performer. Like, I, I mean, I, I'll step up to the plate and do it, but it's not my calling, I don't think, to be a performer. I'm not, like, God's gift to the stage, whereas someone like Katie actually is. <laughs> and so, like, I was yeah. able to learn and sort of step up a bit in terms of delivery and confidence on the stage. 
because that's really where her mastery is, especially when it comes to singing. So, you know, there were tr there were troubles behind the scenes here and there with that project, but overall, I'm glad that we did it, and I learned a lot, and and I feel proud of the work we did, and um, and you know, it's just there were times where I truly thought it wouldn't see the light of day. So I'm glad that in terms of like conflict behind mm -hmm. the scenes. And so I'm really glad that it did because a lot of these super groups actually never see the light of day. Like I've heard of people trying to do this. I'm not saying I'm so great. I'm in a super group, but they, people did call it that. Um, and a lot of times these collaborations between random legends or whatever don't necessarily pan out. And it, it did. I don't think there will be another one, but it did pan out. We did do a tour and people did like it. So that feels good yeah. to me. It, it, it really did pan out. It, it just worked. I mean, the results were just fantastic. Um, and so, it, you know, it sounds like there was not too much ego getting in the way. And maybe that was part of the process. And, you know, you, you were coming at it from a point of view of abundance rather than being precious about the material i mean when when i hear that as a fan it's always remarkable to me to to hear um when artists are narrowing down music for an album from you know 100 songs to 12 you think well, how do you even create 100 songs that might be candidate records for an album because each song on an album seems like a huge effort so where does that come from? Do you just wake up in the morning and and write a tune? I mean, how does that work? Um, it's been more of like, that's my job, and I'll sit there and do it. Um, mm. And that's how it's been the whole time. And um, like over many years, I've just treated it like my day job. Although I don't have eight hours of writing in me, usually there's like two one or two hours every day. And then the rest is like preparing, preparing for that. A lot of times I'll um, like exercise as a preparation for writing because um, running or biking or working out is a time for me to like let my mind wander. And in that yeah. wandering time, and especially with running or biking, because there's forward motion, there's something about the forward motion that allows my mind to get these ideas. And then I'll come like quickly write them down because, you know, they're so fleeting, like whether it's a lyrical idea or a melodic idea, usually it's a lyrical yeah. idea. I'll get it down because like that stuff just goes. And then another way that I'll write is I've been into poetry more in the last few years. So I'll write poems kind of for fun here and there. And um, then I'll, when I sit down to write my songs, I'll be like, Oh, I don't know what to write about today. What did I write about in that poem? Oh, here's this poem. Okay. Oh, that's a cool line. Like grab some stuff. Like it's a little bit experimental, just like kind of poking around, like almost like mm. just meandering around, just seeing what happens. And when you take, when I take that approach, it's not precious. It's not like, Oh my God, I need to be a genius today. It's like, well, what were you trying to get at with this poem? And how can you like morph that into a song format? And, and then I can build up a wealth of material that then later I can listen back like, Oh, that one's working um, musically, but I don't really like those lyrics or vice versa, you know? And then I can kind of like build on the sense of having accomplished something in terms of having written some stuff and then 
keep going and then build an album from there. Yeah, in a, in a way, it's kind of interesting to hear that because it's your 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 working patterns are not that different from the rest of us, I guess. You know, you, you we go into the office for eight hours and procrastinate for a while and maybe get two two good hours <laughs> of a day. Yeah. Speaking of poetry, so you've been again back in 2016. So we when you were doing Case Lang and Veers, I think that's when you first recorded or you first wrote the panther anyway it's only just come to release to be released a few weeks ago which is to the poetry of and i'm gonna i'm gonna pronounce this wrong but is it reina maria rilke yes rilke so where did that come from and is that something that is going to lead to a bigger project for you is the interpretation of poetry into song whether it be yours or the poetry of others i like that idea i actually hadn't thought of that i have adapted um either lines from books or feel like I've turned a poem into a song before, but maybe I haven't. I mean, certainly my own, but I don't know if I've done it with anyone else's work. But I, I know through the years I've drawn lines from books and turned that into yeah. a song. Uh, like, don't lose yourself. Uh, I think it's a, it's a fascinating area, I think, because poet, poetry is so different from song lyrics. Yes. But sometimes there are artists who write lyrics as poetry. Uh, and for me, it just it stands out. It's kind of an interesting concept. Yeah. So if you've been writing poems, I think you should definitely put them into song. Yeah. I mean, it's a good starting point because a lot of times people have trouble just starting, you know, and if you already have some words on a page, then you're like, okay, cool. I can start, you know, today with this, with a line from this, from this poem. So yeah, it's, um, it's a good idea. And I may do that. The Panther, that was just, um, I think I was, I was feeling trapped at that time in my life, in my psychological life and in my marriage and everything. So I um, was able to access this kind of like personal connection to that poem about this panther pacing around a cage. And um, at that time, I also was developing this interest in writing different music to the same lyrics just to see almost again in that experimental realm of like, well, what could you do with this music? Like you've got the words, so how can the music change around these interesting words? Because for me, the words really are the hardest part. And in that case, they were taken Mm -hmm. care of by Rilke. And so, yeah, it's just kind of like the beginning of that process of writing multiple versions. So when I say I write 100 songs, sometimes it's several versions of the same lyrics with different music. All right, I want to come on to maybe a related theme to that which is your in 2011 you made tumblebee which was um basically an album of children's songs and and then later on you've you made you did the book about elizabeth cotton the the folk musician as a as a picture book this has become a bit of a theme in your world i also think that you know sometimes your songs are about wonder and they kind of make me feel a little bit like going back into childhood is that something that is a theme for you that you come back to and think about in your in your work um I do 
I, I was relieved to make the children's record because that was the first album I made after having had a kid. And it was a big adjustment to try to figure out how to continue to be an artist. So it was nice to pull from mostly American and British folk catalog of some, uh, children's songs to make an album that I wanted to listen to. Because so much is such a stigmatized thing. Like a lot of children's music is kind of dumbed down and and doesn't yeah. appeal to adults. So I tried to make something that we would all like, kids and adults. Um, but it was a relief to not have to write at that time. I could just study old songs and pull out the ones that I liked and make a record that way, take a break from writing. And then with the Elizabeth Cotton book, yeah, I was getting, I was reading a lot of picture books because I was raising kids. And I love the picture book form. It's a beautiful art form. Again, kind of underappreciated in terms of how deep it can be. Um, mm. But yeah, in general, I tried to approach, like I, I am inspired by my kids and by children's wonder at the world. And I try not to become like a cynical, burnt out adult. And so I think being around them inspires me to stay fresh and stay alive and stay curious and grow and change. And, and, so, and I'm glad you hear that in the music because I don't want my music to be just like, you know, a downer. Cause I'm not a really downer person. Like I, I I'm like, I'm pretty well-adjusted, like happy person in general, you know? And so yeah. I want, I'm glad you're hearing some wonder because the world is full of wonder. And I I'm hoping that in my catalog, I can capture some of that. And it's not just like all sadness and darkness. There's certainly a sadness and darkness in my music and in life, right? Like obviously life is hard. That's like the human condition. Life is suffering, but I want to get at other, other aspects also. Well, I'm all for playing, you know, dark music to kids anyway, <laughs> you know, or, or introducing them to the, the idea of melancholy, mm-hmm. um, you know, r- rather than just playing them simple nursery rhymes. The the funny thing is there is a nursery rhyme quality to Tumblebee. And actually, since uh, I've been listening to your music all week, and there's a, a, a really bizarre thing that if you play a Laura Veers album, and then you let Spotify do the continuous play thing, you know, it just keeps on playing tracks. You know, it just comes up with this incredible kids music. So I've been hearing versions of Yankee Doodle Dandy, Kermit the Frog doing this or that, and the Wiggles, which kind of brings it all back to me because at one point when my kids were small, you know, the Wiggles loomed a bit bit large in my life. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know if you're aware of that. I mean, that's just you, 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 something happened with Tumblebee was either, um, put there. It's either prominent in the algorithms or you're, you're kind of tagged with along with children's music. It might not be what you intended, but actually it's been quite good fun. (laughs) I had no idea that's happening. And I mean, I don't mind. I kind of just like, I'm just like the, the internet is a wild west and I'm like, I don't have, you know, I do have management and they're great. But we're not like going in with a scalpel at that level, and like yeah, no. Know. Get get your management to to have a word with Spotify about the tagging. Although I can tell you that the Wiggles version of Elephant by Tame Impala is is pretty uh, pretty mean. <laughs> I'll have um, to check that out because I'm a fan of him. <laughs> so, uh, just going back to uh, more recent times, so fast forwarding a bit to 2020 and the pandemic. Um, obviously, you know, you have My Echo has come out during 2020 and it's been a massive year for you because like all of us, you know, the pandemic has had you at home, but also you went through a divorce and everything else. So at one point I read that you had writer's block 
for that? Was that connected to the pandemic or what happened there? And how did you get through that period? I don't remember having any writer's block. So I'm not where, sure where that came from. Um, but I, I didn't write a lot after my immediate separation because I found it too traumatic to write about it. But then after six months, so I've been separated like 20 months. Um, it'll be two years in September. So after like six months of separation, I was able to start writing about it and processing that. And I think as I've read about writing and learned more about writing, it is hard to write about trauma when you're in the middle of it. But mm. if once you have some distance, you can start wrapping your mind around it and um, yeah. making sense of it. And that is what I did with my current record. And I had started dating some and like exploring that whole world, which was completely new because I hadn't dated in 25 years. And so that was like, what? Online dating? I've never even thought about online dating. And <laughs> like, it's so weird, you know, but now I'm like, I know all about it. Once COVID hit, I, I did date a couple people here and there, but it just sort of like became too complex with kids and like a raging pandemic and like this virus, you know? So I just simmered down on that. And it, it's kind of a blessing in disguise for me because I really have, I was very lost in my relationship and very, I had lost my sense of self. And now, after having been out of that for almost two years, I'm gaining, I'm regaining my sense of who I am, independent yeah. of anyone else, like any man or any partner. And that that time away has been so good, like so clarifying to me and so enriching. And, you know, divorce sucks and it's hard to break up a family, but it was definitely the right thing for me. And now I'm coming to terms with like who I am as a person and really getting into the weeds with what I want, how I want to live going forward. And the pandemic combined with that really forced the issue to the surface for so many people. Like, how do you want to live? What are your core values? Mm. What are, how do you want to make your dent in this world? <clears throat> Which we all know now more than ever is limited. Our time is limited. So how do you want to spend it authentically and joyfully? If you can find joy, you know, like, where is it? So that is, that's, it's been a very hard year. Like the pandemic, especially like it's just been really hard for so many different reasons, but especially after, cause I had this live in nanny named Lori and she came in after the separation and she had been our babysitter before. And my ex doesn't have my kids very often. So like every other weekend. So having her around to just allow me to have a life outside of being a mom during the pandemic was so critical and so powerful and allowed me to write my new album, which I'm recording in the fall with John Parrish in Portland. John Parrish, the British producer who worked with PJ Harvey and all PJ kinds of Harvey. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that's going to be interesting. Yeah. That's very exciting it, to hear. It is exciting. So what's your relationship with the My Echo record? Because I guess you didn't have, it wasn't part of the natural touring cycle that would have been cut short. Although I think you are, you know, you're due to tour at some point when we come out of this. Will you tour that record or because you're a prolific writer and you've, you're moving on to the next project, you know, how will you, will you be happy to skip touring it or, or, or what, what's your, what's your relationship with it as a, an ongoing piece of work in the catalog? I mean, it's complex because my relationship was falling apart and I, I didn't really see it clearly, but 
course, now I can see clearly what was going on. But in the time at that time, I didn't know. So it was the song seeing before I could see what was going on with the breakdown of my relationship. And it's just so bizarre because my producer was my husband and the father of my kids. So we were working on this album about our ending of our relationship, you know, together. It was so weird. But at the same time, you know, the songs are true to me and they reflect my, my life at that time. And to me, they're very distant now. Like that feels like a different time. And now I've written another album already. So I feel that of course, more connection to the new material, but you know, every album I make is a record of that time of my life. And I've made them Mm. every year or two or three for my whole career. And it's, it's, I respect that. I respect the song. I respect my, you know, my artistry as it comes out in that moment. And I don't feel like sometimes there are certain songs I won't want to sing, but you know, overall I, I can go through hard times in my life, process them through song. And then especially as time goes on, the good ones, I put good in quotes because who's to know which one is good and which one isn't. But for me, like certain ones resonate over time. And a lot of times those ones resonate with the audience too. Like those are the ones that we all resonate with. And I'll play those songs, even though they were about a hard time. Like I Can See Your Tracks was about a different breakup and really feeling the loss of that old relationship. Well, I had also been starting a new relationship with Tucker at that time. I like to play I Can See Your Tracks. Like, I still resonate with that song. And even Mm. though it was about a very hard time in my life. So I'm assuming that going forward, even though some of the songs on my echo are painful to, like, reckon with in a way, because it was a painful time, they still honor my experience. And I will play them. And I don't think I'll play like the whole record down top to down, but I, I don't really do that anyway anymore. Like yeah. so many of my fans want to hear it. Cause there are like hundreds of songs now, right. In the catalog. So they, yeah. they want to hear old stuff too. So I kind of mix in new and old and I'll probably even mix in ones they haven't heard yet. Yeah. I think when you built up a catalog over 11 albums, you know, it, it, I guess it gets hard to select which songs you want to play live and which songs you want to have a continued relationship with but you you're you're a true album artist i'm interested in how especially as a self-managed artist or you know as an independent artist in this day and age how you cope with the streaming era because you're not a huge streaming artist and you know we live in a song economy or we work in a song economy how do you kind of reconcile your projects as as albums which are coherent works every few years that represent what it is you want to say and how you're feeling with with that body of work in today's market where it's just like a seems like a waterfall of songs just coming at us you know 24 7 it's a great question i tend to i think i'm just in that mindset of the album and i probably always will be to me it's just very gratifying to work for a couple years on songs and a recording and an album campaign in terms of like the design of the art and the videos, like the whole thing to me is such a fun, it's hard and it has stressful moments like anything, like any job, but I'm so grateful I get to do it. Cause I just love the art form of an album. Like the, just the physical mm. final record, like that people still buy those is awesome. Cause I still make them and hold them and look at them, you know, like it's such a beautiful art form. If you're thinking about art, 
it's like a book, you know, like I love that I made a book. I can hold the book. I can look at the book. The art is beautiful in the book. I feel that way about a vinyl record. It's less so about a CD because it's plasticky and kind of small. The, ve- yeah. the record's so big and it's tactile. Like I hope that I get to keep making records because I'm so old in that way. Just I love that art form and the whole presentation of it, like connecting the show and the outfits and the art to the record, to the themes, to the videos. Mm. Like to me, that whole thing is really fun. So it's like theater in a way, you know, like, so I think I'll probably stay in that way, but who knows? Like maybe times will really change and it becomes just song by song economy. But to me, like, I just love that process of making a cohesive piece of work that someone can put on their record player. Yeah, me too. And I think you're right. I think it's got uh, ongoing qualities, no matter how you know old the listener is. There's something about making an album that you know commands your attention for however long and takes you on a bit of a journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I think you, I think you're good at that. And I think actually the maybe the the art of doing that well is just becomes more of a challenge mm-hmm. in in today's marketplace mm-hmm. where we've got limited attention spans and and people don't tend to listen to 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 work like that well and then that that comes back to like the artist's internal motivation like to me art making is a way of like making sense of my life and then translating that to others so that I think ultimately my goal is to make us feel less alone. Because when I, when I hear art or see art or read books that moves me, I feel less alone. And now we're so lonely, like more than ever because of the pandemic. It's a way to connect. And I think for me, it's a way to connect with myself first. That's my ultimate motivation. It's not for others. It's for me to make sense of my life. And it feels good. That's why I do it. Even though sometimes it feels painful, ultimately it feels good and healing. And then if other people like it, that's a bonus. When other people hear your records, I think that's a process that is is part of listening to it as well. It's it it is there's a healing process there. It's there's a bit of redemption there. There's definitely some melancholy, but it's very uplifting. So I, I think you're translating whatever's going on for you to to the listener. Thank you. Uh, and your your albums are are critically revered. I mean, they're always well reviewed, um, and I'm sure the fans love them as well. But the critics love you. Now, I uh, one of my favorite bands is is Spoon, the U.S. indie band Spoon. And there, there was an article a few years back written by Dave Simpson in the Guardian that Spoon are the best band in the world based on their reviews. So if I extrapolate that. A minute. I, that makes you, I think, one of the world's greatest singer-songwriter solo artists because you you don't have a bad review. I'm just interested in whether that's important to you and how you measure the success of your own work once you've made it and things have settled down a bit. So when the dust has settled over my echo or looking back on your catalogue, how do you measure the success project by project? I don't really think about success that much. Um, I think about the next thing. I'm like, okay, well, that, that happened. Right. It's like once it's done, it's really out of my hands. And I, I frankly, it's not that I don't care. It's just that I'm not really attached to the outcome. To me, the important part is 
is writing it, that's the most difficult part. And then executing it with some kind of grace in the studio, performing it, and then performing it live. Like, I'm really in the moment of each of those things. And by the time my album comes out, I'm early on to the next thing. Like, in the moment of writing the next one and, like, learning how to be a better guitar player, a better singer, better songwriter. And not that, like, improvement is always the goal either. But processing life in a way, like, living life in a way that feels, I don't know, like, I can process my life through my art and be a good mom, be a good friend, be a good partner. If I ever choose to be a partner again, like in a partnership, like those are the things I'm focusing on. I'm not focusing on success. Like success to me is being a good person in the world, having like good relationships with people who, who you're around. It's not like for me, it's not ticket sales or album sales. Although those are great when those happen and I don't take it lightly that I have fans and, and I have an ongoing career. I'm very grateful for that. But at the root of it, I'm really trying to be a good person in the world and like enjoy my life and hopefully translate that somehow through my music. And keep on moving forward. Yes. So I, I read somewhere that you were you felt like you were crossing the isthmus. Uh I, I suppose because you've had um, you've had a lot of things happen in your in your life in in the last sort of twelve or eighteen months. What what's on the other side of the isthmus for you? What's next or on the horizon? So making this record in Portland in the fall is exciting. A new horizon because it's a new producer. I've never worked with a different producer, um, and you know, finding my way post divorce, post pandemic, moving house because. Uh, we're going to buy a house in a different neighborhood or rent a house uh, where my kids can go to a school that I think is better for them. And, you know, just moving towards my new life, which is independent of, of a partnership. And like I said, I'm not ruling that out in the future, but it's not high on my list right now. My high on my list is like stabilizing my family life, focusing a lot on myself, healing from my divorce, exercising, keeping my body healthy and um, maintaining my friendships and and making great art and and pushing myself to grow continually as an artist and not, and not be afraid. Cause I think, you know, I teach songwriting and uh, I've been doing some zoom classes around that in the pandemic, which has been really fun because people come from all over the world and so many of them are fearful. And that's just Mm. such a common feeling for adults when, when we're, trying to create something. And so for me, pushing myself to be brave, continually brave in my writing and not censor myself and, and grow as an artist. Like that's, that's where I'm headed. Well, you, you've definitely grown as an artist and it, it's talking about being fearful. I mean, that's the challenge, right? In this business, mm-hmm. the industry is so much more competitive than it was in 2001. When you started out, you're here 20 years later, you've run your own label you're an independent artist. You've been through the roller coaster of major labels and uh, and come out the other side. What's the advice that you would give to young people making music or kind of breaking into the scene today? Um, I would say find what you love about it and go with that and and um, have it come from some. In, if you can find your internal joy in the process then you'll be able to make something that you're proud of. Um, for me, that's it starts with the writing. So there's just something about songwriting that I love. I don't know what it is. It's just such a mystery. I guess that's what it is. It's so mysterious yeah. how 
anyone can come up with a song. <laughs> and um, the combination of melody and lyrics is so, so mysterious and interesting. So, and endlessly interesting. So I think find what you think is interesting about it, the process, whether that's the writing, the playing, the recording, you could even do the managing, um, the arranging, the lights, you know, the stage side of it, the touring side. There's like infinite paths, you know? What is it <laughs> yeah, that draws yeah. you fundamentally to it? Go with that. Find your own joy in that aspect of it and then grow that. And then, you know, there'll probably be an offshoot from that. Like, say you're really into bass guitar. You might get really into like a different instrument after that. It's not that you only need to play bass. But get try to get really deep into one aspect of it, I think, and then go from there, see where that off, that offshoot goes. But I think it really needs to come from within you. It can't be like your mom said you should go like how to play piano. It's like, yeah, it's great if your parents taught you how to play piano or forced you to learn piano. But what's your relationship to the piano? How can you draw something interesting right. out of the piano for yourself? It needs to come from this drive within yourself and that grit because it takes a lot of grit to stay in this business, but it's worth it. Because then you look back, like I look back, wow, I made all these records. People like them. I get to still go to, on tour. People come out to shows across the world to see me play my songs. Like, that's awesome. You know, it's really gratifying to, to have been at it this long and to still be doing it and still have people be interested in it. So I'm grateful for that. I would, I would just encourage young people to find their own, follow their own compass, as hard as that is. But mm. find what is interesting to you about it at, in your soul. And then and then draw that out. Okay. Well, look, uh, it's it's been great to hear you say that, and I, I I look forward to what wherever you go next. It sounds like you you've set your direction and you're you're making your next record, and that's going to be exciting to hear. Um, congratulations on you know twenty years plus in the music industry, and and keep on going, and and good luck with being a cool mum. I mean, I I think you come across as as a cool person so I don't see why you shouldn't be a cool mom as well I'll keep working on them thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanks for the interview Keith I appreciate it yeah take care bye bye okay bye bye